I would say symbolism is kind of like a layered, repeated, kind of subliminal working of how a story is represented through a variety of mechanisms like similes, metaphors, um, the scene layout. They're like different points of the scene or the storyline that help to convey a deeper part of the story and it kind of provides some resonance to other similar stories or storyline. Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Joshua Valentine, thank you so much for joining Speculative Sandbox. I'm really excited to have this discussion on symbolism and abstractions with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. This is uh, our last episode of this batch. So I'm excited to have this conversation with you. And um, so I have some icebreaker questions for you. But before we get to that, how about you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell our listeners what you do in your projects? So my name is Joshua Valentine, as Vicky just introduced me as. Um, but a lot of you, if you prefer it, you could call me Josh. Um, just more casual name. Um, I'm. I like to refer to myself as the drag queen superstar author. So it's kind of a hybrid personality. I feel like a lot of authors don't have a lot of flamboyance in how they express themselves, and they're more muted and tame in how they express themselves. Typically, flamboyance is more expressed through writing, and I think that's kind of the opposite model of how like something like a pop star would express themselves. So, so think of like Lady Gaga or Gwen Stefani or one of the more flamboyant, campy artists of the 2010s, and even the 80s, like with Madonna. They had a flamboyant presence, but they also had flamboyant writing. So I kind of wanted to adopt that model as an author, and so I present in drag whenever I do writing or whenever I sell my books. So my books have a variety of drag queen images throughout it that kind of make it kind of like if you're reading a Vogue magazine or a fashion magazine. So it's more than just a science fiction story. It's also a photography collection, which the photography doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the book. It's just more so a reflection of who I am as the author behind the book. I love how writing can be such a great way to express ourselves in many, many ways, <laughs> including having more flamboyance, as you were saying. Now, can you describe a little bit of like what that looks like on the page? If someone's like, hey, I kind of want to maybe adopt that writing style. Um, so with writing, I like using um, this kind of ties into the symbolism we're talking about, but I really like using shock factor, kind of more akin to like horror, the horror genre. Um. I think shock factor could be a great way to kind of stimulate the reader and it kind of and can sometimes be campy, um, but it could also tie into a more layered type of symbol symbolism that is repeated throughout the story. And so it could be campy or tacky, but also like really shocking to read. But really what it's trying to do is convey a deeper point. So I think really just a lot of what you see in horror films, I think is a good inspiration for um, kind of having flamboyance in writing. Would satire be another form? I would argue it could be. Okay. I love satire because, and I love reading things that have like a clear satirical edge because it's, it's almost like a, uh, almost meta. It's a a self-observation. Yeah. Uh huh. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Okay. So icebreaker questions. I've got three ready for you. You ready? Yes. All right. If you had to choose between fame 
but it was for something bad or obscurity, but you secretly save the world, which would you rather have? Well, it's kind of it's kind of interesting question. Like with the Oppenheimer movie coming out re- um soon, mm-hmm. I'd say probably obscurity for doing something good because I feel like because it, it kind of reminds me of how George Michael, when he was alive, he never made public announcements when he donated to stuff, and he did stuff just out of privacy. And I think when you do something good for people, but you're um, you're more obscure and it's not well known that you were the one who did it. I think it kind of removes the ego from the process. Cause I think even if you tried to convince yourself that you're not doing it for egotistical purposes when you're in the limelight showing off what you did, I think it would your ego would naturally just contaminate the goodness of what you're doing. So I think doing something good while obscure, I think I'd prefer that because it feels it would feel more authentic. And I think Doing something known for something bad, I would just taint how people perceived my just my life. And I don't I think I'd have a lot more depth to me as a person and this hypothetical than just someone that did something bad. Okay. Well, speaking of things that happen that are bad, pretend you've been alive for as long as humanity has existed. Would there have been a time in history where you would have felt like, you know, I've seen enough. I'm I'm done. Um I'm not sure. Um, to be honest, I'd say maybe like really early on in human history, like when there were like all these various subgroups of humans and then humans just killed off all those humans. Well, not killed off necessarily, but those other subgroups died off. And I think that would be the point where I checked out because I know evolutionarily when it's just one subgroup of a species, it's not doesn't bode well for evolutionary chances. And so I think Note, once I realized that all those different, that all those, the variety of groups within the human kind of species, the Homo sapiens species, when they died out, I think I realized, yeah, this is not going to end well because they don't have a lot of variety. Um, so probably when like prehistoric humans began to interbreed with other subgroups of humans and then killed them off in rivalries and stuff like that. Um, That's interesting. It makes me, I always think about how society, to me, I, I'm always trying to like, parallel with other animals that we see on earth just how society works and and how war driven our society is i think a lot about ants yeah like colonies go against colonies right and then Mm -hmm. even like when you interrupt i I think a lot about how we kind of have this machine going right this machine of society and work and capitalism and everything and something interrupts that but you're still expected to keep the machine churning and i think about when there's a line of ants going into their hill and if you step on the on them and there could be a devastation like ants are dead the ants are like okay find the line complete the line finish the. it's just interesting yeah definitely all right. And then if you had, this is more happy, but it goes into her symbolism. If you had to choose a color that best represents you, what would it be? Um, and why? Symbolically. I would say the color black because um, while it is a very potent color, it's a very powerful color. It could represent so many things like the night, for instance, or something like there being a lot of depth like say like with the ocean um i'd say it's a misunderstood color because many people at least in western society interpret it as something more symbolic of dark magic or something dark and i think it's just misunderstood but also has more depth than is shown by a complicated surface all right well joshua what interested you in the topic of symbolism I'd say the works of John Borman. I'm not sure if you've heard of that director. Um, he directed Deliverance in the 70s. That was like a thriller, I think, and actually received an Academy Award nomination. So he was a pretty renowned director in his heyday. Um, but he had two films that were very symbolic to the point they kind of subverted realism in the story. Um, are you aware of Exorcist to the Heretic? Mm-mm. So it's like the sequel to the original Exorcist, but it's like said to be like people, most people consider it the worst film of all time, the worst sequel. Um, but I kind of take a different position to it. But that film was directed by John Borman, and so was his other sci-fi film, Zardoz. And if you look at it at the surface level, they're very campy, tacky films. They're not realistic. The acting's not that great. But if you look at it at a more meta perspective, where you see layers of symbols 
that repeat throughout the film and kind of have more depth to them. You could tell that it's there was a good story going on, but it wasn't in your explicit kind of aware channels of awareness. And so I'm just naturally a contrarian. I consider myself a contrarian when it comes to a lot of pop culture stuff. Like, I don't like the Beatles at all. I'll be honest right there. I, I take, like, I wrote a very raunchy poem about how much I hate the Beatles. Um, and it's just because I don't like popular stuff. And when it comes to Zardoz and Ecstasy the Heretic, I was just so fascinated that so many people hated these films, but there was so much depth if you just look, if you just unsubscribed from that hyper need to be realistic and you just looked at the symbols laid out because there was a story there it just wasn't you had to think a little more and it's kind of like a puzzle so really john borman's films interested me but it's also um just how much that influenced my writing because i thought that was such a cool idea that something could be you could it could the story could be told in a different channel of awareness kind of like esp but you're not explicitly aware of it um you just have to kind of channel it by looking at it it from a different angle. So then what is symbolism and how do you work it into your storytelling? Um, so I don't really have like a scholarly definition of it. I never really took art classes or creative writing classes um, for my degree, but I would say symbolism is kind of like a layered or repeated, well, at least the one I think is most effective is that a layered, repeated, kind of subliminal working of how a story is represented uh, through a ver variety of mechanisms like similes, metaphors, um, the scene layout. I think they're like different um, non-story. Well, okay. They're not explicitly part of the scene. They're kind of like external. They're not like you don't internalize it from the reader or the writer, the narrator. Um, but they're like different points of the scene or the storyline that help to convey a deeper part of the story. And it kind of provides some resonance to other similar stories or storylines. I think you mentioned in the outline um, Princess Diana going down the stairs, and it was kind of akin to different mythology. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it kind of shows resonance to other storylines and how it could resonate with a variety of different storylines and kind of provide a more meta observation of what that story is conveying there. And I think it's just stuff that's subliminal. If you subscribe, unsubscribe from that need for realism in the story, you could see it. And it's kind of like below awareness, which I think is really cool about symbolism. And in my stories, I typically just do it like how I've been kind of discussing it, like just subverting expectations for realism and kind of repeating that symbol. I think one-off symbols are good, but I think when it's repeated, it kind of makes the story like consistent with the symbols and you're telling, you're portraying the symbols in a consistent way. And so I think when I tell a story that has symbols in it, I make sure it's repeated and I make sure it fits into a larger scheme that is related to the story in some way. So it kind of marries the need for realism with the need for psychedelics or abstraction or symbolism. It, not only that, but symbolism is a really neat way for people who are watching something together, like, you know, TV shows or whatever, mm -hmm. and pick out Easter eggs and unpack. Right. And it gives them a tool for like prediction, uh, especially when they recognize those repetitions and symbols. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So let's dive in. Let's discuss some of our favorite uses of, of symbolism and examples from fiction. Um, let's start with color. Um, color, I feel like, is probably one of the most, you know, apparent. Uh, I asked you earlier what color would best represent you. So let's go over some color examples. I have green for jealousy and money, red mm -hmm. for rage, purple for royal. And then my, my one example is the green light in The Great Gatsby. So mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on color? I think color is like a, such an easy kind of perceptual cue to manipulate to convey something deeper with symbols because it's so, it's something that's so basic to our vision as people. And it, it's what's cool is that a vision, like when it comes to your cones and your eyes, like for perceiving color, color receptors, it's, it varies between people. Some people could see deeper shades of red or deeper shades of blue that other people can't see. Some people can't see a whole, um, whole variety of certain colors because of color blindness but i think manipulating that cue color which is just what constructs our whole which is like kind of like the perceptual cue that constructs our whole notion of reality i think that's it's a really easy to um kind of symbol to um 
um, implement into a story because it's so basic to our vision. And I think just like how we how we perceive faces, that's kind of a, um, kind of a good way to like manipulate symbols because we could kind of naturally as humans we tie in colors to how we perceive faces. So, you know, a red face is evolutionarily depict um, perceived as an angry face. A blue face is when some a blue pigmented face, I should say, is when someone's sad. Green is when someone's sick. Yellow is when someone's dehydrated. Stuff like that. So I think just kind of that, it's such an easy um, symbol to manipulate and add a basic symbol symbolic effect. It's so widely used too mm -hmm. uh, for graphic designers using it in marketing materials and trying to convey a certain emotion out of their their viewers. Um, it's it's amazing how universal a lot of our interpretations of, of color have come mm -hmm. to be. Yeah. Um, and also how much culture, uh, and this is something that I was going to bring up later, but now we're talking about color. For example, we use the color white for weddings, but mm -hmm. in other countries like Vietnam, it's a funeral color. Right. And it's always interesting when those colors clash and there, there can be many times, especially online, everyone's it's so international, there can be a lot of misunderstandings um, right. associated with color confusion. Definitely. And I think that's kind of interesting, like when you brought up international like how like globalized our kind of economy is and how we, when it comes to the film domain and storytelling domain. And I think that kind of makes for an interesting, I wouldn't say clashing, but con confliction of ideas and how we perceive symbols within f films and stories and how that could lead to um, a misinterpretation of the author's or storyteller's intent with a symbol. So moving on to my next uh, item on the list, animals. Uh, mm -hmm. most obvious one that came to my mind was the snake right. pulling back from biblical times. I most recently, I think of Taylor Swift and how she used the snake. It was used against her at first when the Kardashians kind of, you know, got, I don't know the people, I don't know if it was a PR stunt or if it was just a feud. Um, and she started, she embraced the snake and used mm -hmm. it in her whole album. Uh, so, and the snake is frequently used as an emoji on social media. So what other animals do you think of? Um, let me think. <laughs> I'd say a dog would be a good, or wolf would be a good symbol of loyalty and um, kind of, um, what's the word? I wouldn't say, co maybe cohabitation. It's a good symbol of like community and collaboration because dogs, it's also, dogs are so integral to the human experience if you think about it, just evolutionarily. Um, I know there's evo evolutionary psychology research that shows that dogs can naturally they have like a, they're it's easy for them to perceive human faces the same as humans do and perceive emotions and kind of have almost a telepathic um connection with humans and i think just dogs are an easy symbol to of an, an animalistic symbol to adopt because they're so integral to the human experience i'd argue at least the human cultural experience and i think just dogs could be a good symbol like i said of just loyalty collaboration um hubris stuff like that I really like that. Uh, that got, got me thinking about like, okay, what other animals kind of have an instant association and I, mm -hmm. owls for wisdom. Right, right. Think of that. I'd say elephants. I'd say could have a mm. kind of like maybe not cross culturally, but maybe like in more Asian country, cultures, like you know, elephants. Like India, I think elephant the elephant is a very significant symbol. But it's interesting because elephants. You see how we see it in America, it's the whole symbol representing the Republican um, National Party, but then it's interpreted differently in other cultures that are not westernized. Oh, that's true. That is really interesting. And yeah. then I think of the cat and how the cat has changed in so many ways, going from reverence in ancient Egypt to full on affiliation with witchcraft and um, yeah. people attacking cats on Halloween, black cats, like it's kind of crazy how we yeah. as a society have targeted the cat i know i, I was going to mention cats too it's a it's interesting like that's like there's definitely a cultural divide i'd argue when it comes to perceiving cats and it's interesting because like the more the bigger cats you see like in these different societies like in north america it's different to the cats you'd see and the bigger cats you'd see in like say egypt and so it's kind of interesting or, Af or africa too broadly it's kind of an interesting comparison and well, when I try to think of what does a cat mean symbolically, yeah, um, I I I personally affiliate it with like cleverness, and yeah, and so part of me wonders if like we fear 
that degree I, like if we fear cleverness in another animal or uh, there's also femininity that i i feel like is associated often with cats so i don't know if that it goes for, even further into society <laughs> i feel like maybe it could like i feel like a lot of symbols definitely have ties to religion and spirituality kind of like a inner knowing of like or inner subconscious perception of something greater than what we perceive in our in our reality something like heaven or gods or goddesses and i think egyptians i know they ancient ones they had they were i think they're um what would it be called polytheistic or something um i know they believed in more than one god and so i think that kind of like that mysticism and that spirituality i think it kind of contradicted the kind of monotheistic um dominant culture of Europe and the Western society and how they only largely adopted the Christian ideology. And so I think it's interesting how religion could also be the basis for our symbolic perceptions of animals, such as a cat. Absolutely. And what a religion might choose to continue to reject or embrace. Like I think a lot about how um, a lot of religious holidays now land on pagan uh, holidays like mm -hmm. Christmas and the winter solstice and then the spring sol the spring equinox is that what it is for I Easter like, I think so yeah where a lot of those things tend to kind of overlap and um, I'm thinking could cats have been adapted <laughs> into some, a new meaning uh, I mean I don't know I'm not a I'm not a religious leader so yeah or a theologist or any of yeah. that yeah <laughs> there's there's interesting to think about Going back to what you mentioned earlier when you referenced the outline, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about this symbolism of, uh, of journey, which I thought was so interesting. And this didn't come from me. I think I saw it as a YouTube some, or TikTok. Someone was unpacking the symbolism in the crown when a young Princess Diana descends the stairs away mm -hmm. from her friends to then go into like the rest of her life with like Prince Charles and the way they film it it's the camera looks up at her friends and the the there's a lot of forced perspective going on where things aren't uh -huh. quite correct and you can feel like she's descending down into madness down the rabbit hole and right. it's so cool but like honestly you didn't have to recognize that to to fully understand like the reference but you could feel it you know right, inherently right. it was such a good visual I think I like that, like using kind of like Alice in Wonderland-esque um, symbols. I think Lady Gaga did that really well with her 2020 album Chromatica because literally the first um, sung song on the album after the first kind of classical kind of marker in the album, which was the Chromatica one, it was called Alice. And it was about um, kind of like it was an interesting introduction to a story of journeying through the healing process of different traumas using dance music. So I think that's also kind of an interesting little way that Alice in Wonderland or like um, descending into madness, like you said, is kind of how it was explored by Lady Gaga in 2020. I love that. I did not actually listen to that album of hers. I need to go back and listen to that one. It's a very good um, like electronica house album. And I think it's, I think I really like it. Okay. Awesome. Uh, I Okay, before I move on, I, I wanted to talk about setting. But before that, is there any other symbolism examples that you want to talk about? I actually really like the use of mirrors in a film. Mm. Um, so I specifically say film because I get a lot of my symbolism from visuals, audiovisual. But I really like when mirrors are used. So when um, kind of as a tool for like self-reflection or introspection. You look at the mirror or the character looks at the mirror and sometimes it's repeated mirrors, like just repeating from a mirrored a room that's full of mirrors. And I think that's really interesting to kind of show how deep like the human psyche is instead of just being something just from the brain, like something that's just subjugated to the brain. It's just shows how deep consciousness is. It's not just something found within neural grooves in your brain. It's also something that is cyclic and travels for a long time. That's what I think is beautiful about using mirrors as a form of self-representation. They used mirrors for Wanda in the Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. They trap her and in like a, a I don't know, a prison. And all she sees is a bunch of mirrors. And it's <laughs> basically you're forced to look at who you've become. Right. And the way these mirrors are cracked and jagged, it goes right through her face. So then, you know, she's broken. You're right. looking at the reality of her. I also love mirrors. I, I think it's it's really cool, especially when mirrors can be used as passageways as yeah, well definitely which, which wanda also does i think mirrors are just like even just taking away the symbolism it's just a cool visual to look at i think especially <laughs> when it's like um 
just like a, like repeated mirrors and you have repeated images of yourself throughout the mirrors. And I think one like album that did that really good. So have you heard of the song, the age of Aquarius? It's like a sixties song. Mm, yes. So the age that, of Aquarius. Is yes. that it? Yeah. Okay. That one by the fifth dimension, they, the album, if you open the vinyl, I have the old vinyl. I got it at a thrift store. Um, if you open the vinyl there, they took pictures and like, um, and what would it be like a hexagon or octagonal octagonal shaped room that was just a bunch of mirrors floor to ceiling and wall to wall was mirrors and it's just really interesting to look at because like it's just it goes far back like just a bunch of mirrored reflections of each of the band of the group members and i think it's really interesting because this album was about a lot about liberation and spirituality and I thought it was just really cool to show that type of depth with the with the album called something like the Age of Aquarius, something dealing with astrology and something stuff that's spiritual. That's really cool. Uh, Euphoria also uses a lot of mirrors, um, and and it's interesting because they use it as a way to show transition. Mm-hmm. So, like for example, when a young version of Jacob Elordi's, I think that's his name, character is yeah. doing something, and then it switches and changes to when he lifts his head, and it's now it's like teenager. Um, yeah, I, I I like that too. As mirrors can be used as tools, yeah, uh, to just make interesting transitions. Right, that's definitely true too. All right, any other symbols that you really love? Oh, I was just thinking of one, but. No, I don't think I have any. I think I forgot the one I was going to mention. Oh, well, if you if you think of it, feel free to you know let me know as we okay. move on. So cool. one thing, I, there are two things I really wanted to talk about relating to setting, which I think is really great symbolism. <laughs> one is a kind of quick, quick, easy one, which is the HBO show Girls. There's an episode where Lena Dunham's character has this fling with Patrick Wilson, the act. Well, not the actor himself, but the actor Patrick Wilson is playing this doctor. She she shows up at a, I forgot how they met, but like. Like, it's just one of those flings, like one of those things that no one knows about. It's just between mm-hmm. them. And his house is immaculate. It's everything that Lena Dunham, who's a college kid, I believe at this time, mm-hmm. aspires to have. He's got this gorgeously styled, very modern house. You can tell that like, there's stability. You can tell that about him as a character. Like It's almost like the way the house is styled is a reflection of who he is. But when I was watching this with my husband years ago, and we kind of made that statement, I was like, but you know what? The house decor is very cold. It lacks warmth and it lacks character. Mm-hmm. And you could also say that about the character that Patrick Wilson was playing because he seemed like so debonair and just so on top of things and just like this fantasy experience for Lena. But by the end, you ultimately feel like the connection they had was empty and void of any warmth and character. It's just, it's over. And I I just thought I I was like, I kind of predicted that. And then sure enough, it went in that direction. I'm like, Oh, I kind of loved how the setting helped establish. Yeah, definitely. I think I kind of, now that you mentioned kind of like using like the immaculate, of the setting but also how cold it was kind of i think that's kind of similar to the film mommy dearest um you know that it was the have you heard of that movie or have you, have you watched it i have heard it but I, I think i've even seen clips of it when it was on tv but i have not sat down and watched it yeah so the the film kind of had that same type of illusion of grandeur and um grandiosity and then because it's depicting joan crawford the um the super the famous actress from the old the old old age of Hollywood, and then it shows like because like the house is very immaculate, it has a lot of Art Deco decorations and whatnot, but um, and you it is cold in that same way. It's just a bunch of whites and blues. It's kind of icy, which is kind of a cool reference to the film that she's introduced with that she's filming at the time in the beginning of the film. Um, I think it's Ice Follies, nineteen thirty nine or something. I just think that's kind of an interesting tie-in because she ended up in the film becoming an abusive mother despite having this illusion that she had a perfect life for her kids. And I think that's kind of an interesting reference point to like what you were talking about with that show, Girls. That's so interesting. Well, that makes me wonder, have you ever met someone where their surroundings, their environment, like their home, their nest gave a different impression than their personality? I don't know if I've ever really paid attention to that. Um I guess like when someone has like a super clean home, but then they have a really messy psyche, like they're messy, like mentally, like they have like a lot of mental problems. I guess that's kind of when it kind of seems contrary or contradicting. Um, I'm not sure. I don't think I've ever really thought of that. 
it's it's so interesting because as writers, many times we might think about that, uh, especially if like the the home environment influences the character development in any way, shape, or form. Um, I know that when I used to visit people's houses and if their house is super super immaculate, I'm like, I I, I immediately think. Oh, I suck at <laughs> keeping my own house this clean because right. my clean is a reflection of like the creative mind, I'd like to say. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh, <laughs> uh, all right. Um, have you seen HBO Succession? I've heard a lot about it. I'm really bad at watching um, a lot of TV shows that other people are watching, but I've heard a lot about it. Okay. It's it's wonderful. It's a very, I would say it's a, re- a modern day retelling of of like Shakespeare there's a lot of in fact I talk about the the episode that will come out before this one we talk about succession and uh we discuss the many the multiple Shakespeare influences that go into that show Mm -hmm. but um the the symboling that I really like about it that was a huge topic of discussion on Twitter as we were getting through each episode and trying to predict who was going to be the ultimate successor or uh yeah is that the word success Uh, I think so okay (laughs) Um, it's the use of water for the main character or one of the main characters, Kendall Roy. So he is the son of a huge media tycoon and he, um, you know, raised privileged, always believed that he was going to be next in line to inherit the company. And things that are significant in his storyline and his life always have to do with water. At the end of the first season, he and a, I think it was like a server at one of their parties, they both get high or something while they're driving and they drive off a there's an accident they drive off the bridge they go into water and the 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 server who's driving is still in the car he ends up drowning and mm. the main character gets away and now he has this huge incredible guilt and it'd be awful if that truth that he was affiliated with that got out so there's that then at the very beginning of season two when he's essentially recovering and being reborn he's doing it at a spa where there's water mm-hmm. moving forward um when he's feeling down and depressed he's always like lounging face down in his pool like on a floaty and Uh constantly wondering if he's going to accidentally drown or accidentally on purpose drown and then during the last season when he felt like he was having um high points like he'd go swim in the ocean and when his siblings um tell them that they would actually support him if he became the next assessor they basically um they he they christian him basically while he's sitting on a raft in the water you know on and on and on and at the mm-hmm. very end he's seen staring at the ocean i don't want to give too many details for those that haven't seen it but i i thought i mean that was very on the nose it's a it's an on the nose symbolism that you yeah. know you could arguably change the location for all those things if you decided water wasn't you know, I'm not going to go with water for this series. Let's just move him to like coffee shops for all those yeah, things. And you maybe right. wouldn't pick up on that. But it was nice how it was such an intentional decision. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting use of symbolism because, you know, water, like at least with the ocean, it it goes in cycles because you have the low tide at one point in the day and then you have that high tide. And then it's just continually going through that kind of gravitational pool naturally where it's at differing points within the beach. Um, or the shore and then um, every time the ocean has a high tide it it kind of envelopes everything that's on the beach and kind of submerges it and it could and it's interesting how when it's the low tide there's like all the shore exposed and all the all the all the um, different fixing natural fixings that are under submerged under that water at some point so I think that's kind of interesting how you kind of said like um, rebirth and stuff because it's like ocean at least when it comes to like high tide and stuff it's an evolving process daily so it gets interesting. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a lot about symbols and we've given examples of symbols. I guess doing that in reverse, is there an, an example of a movie or a book that you that you love that serves as a great example of having a lot of symbolism? And I think you talked about this a little bit in your intro. Yeah, definitely. So I again, John Borman films, I really love his use of symbolism. I think my favorite has to be from Exodus to the Heretic. So this symbol is one people couldn't really understand, like in relation to the broader story. Um, So the story was about Reagan McNeil from the first exorcist. She has to deal with the therapeutic effects of the possession. And people are wondering, does she remember anything? And there's this whole push and pull between her clinical psychologist and this one priest that's trying to investigate um, the death of, the priest that had um, overseen her exorcism. And so 
Reagan in the film, she has the psychic ability of precognition, um, being able to see into the future, and clairvoyance too, I think. And she has this vision trance of um, this, that she actually kind of um, was transmitted to her from the priest after he died, um, as she kind of had in her. And it was showing the priest when he was first going to Africa to exercise this one boy named, um, I think, Kokomo. And in that vision, she was like kind of walking towards the balcony, like the edge of like the balcony in her um, New York house, New York penthouse. And while she's doing that, the um, there's this boy in this vision trance where he's going into a field of locusts, and they're all and the locusts in the film they're depicted as bad because they eat the crops and stuff, and they reproduce and eat the, continuing the crops. While he's going into that field of locusts, and kind of you know the crops kind of like are standing up straight. Reagan is going towards the edge of the balcony and this whole, it's all these skyscrapers because of New York, um, I think it's Fifth Avenue or something. And then right as she gets to the edge and he gets to like, and the locusts begin to over and like um, come over him and push him to the ground because it's so um, encompassing. A, bunch, a swarm of doves come up and kind of like overtake her and she almost falls off the building. And it was actually filmed that way. There's no landing or anything to protect the actress. Oh, I just, wow. yeah it was uh that was one of the criticisms of the film was that she was 17 at the time so like it could have been like a huge liability if she was killed but thankfully she wasn't um but it's just interesting how like the guys the priest's first exorcism or at least one that was earlier in his career it showed locust kind of overcoming him and then with reagan when she, she's kind of like this healer depicted as healer shows doves coming over her and i think that's interesting and also i think the film just uses a lot of like really like skyscraper adjacent monuments to kind of depict like a descent from um into like a vision or like a breaking point with an exorcism because when the priest is taking up kakumo to get exercised in this um one north african um room i don't know what it would be called religiously um he's climbing up something that's kind of like a mountain it's kind of like those um different like it's not a valley but it's like they look like skyscrapers. I don't know if you know what I'm describing. It's kind of like, uh, like a lot of sediment that builds up, and it looks hmm. kind of like skyscrapers, but it's like almost like a canyon if I describe it correctly. Kind of okay. like it if you see cracked dirt, like in the desert, it just would look like that, but like blown up, um, to be human sized or mountainous. And so he's pulling him up that, and then there's also that scene where she's dangling from the skyscraper when she first is having recollections of her exorcisms. And also when she has like a big vision trance um, later in the film, she falls from the stage and behind her there's buildings like stage props that look like buildings. So I think those are like my favorite uses of symbolism. That sounds amazing. Well, and when you talk about those some symbolisms, all, all those things, you know, happen in or uh, clearly pulled from real life. So mm -hmm. I'd like to use this to kind of transition to the next portion where we talk about symbolism in real life and how um, we perceive things that later on we start using to express symbols and feelings mm -hmm. uh, as a secret layer in fiction. So like, for example, buildings are, we want to make buildings as tall as possible. We've had competitions, I think, with other countries on who can make mm -hmm. the tallest building. We, we, we really care about ascending the, the tallest mountains, a huge accomplishment. So let's talk about symbolism, how we create meaning out of everyday things. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your thoughts on that? I'd say I was really interested seeing that in the outline because it does have a lot of ties into cognitive psychology and cognitive science, especially like something like traffic signals and different signs, road signs. A lot of the symbols we see in um, traffic signs and stuff, it's adopted from cognitive psychological research, I know, because we it's meant to visualize stuff that's easy to kind of compute in the human brain it's like when you see like an arrow pointing to the left on a road you know that you instinctively kind of know like the left going to the left is being prioritized on the road or when you see the color red for a stoplight that's typically easily to compute as something that's bad so you have to stop so i think it's really interesting how symbolism in modern architecture and different arrangements of cities and stuff and societies it's just an adoption of stuff that's easy for us to perceive and so it's easy it's kind of like a lower level form of language processing to abstract symbols like colors and um, arrows and stuff or when you see like um like a warning sign at a lake and it shows a person swimming and there's like a that slash through it that's kind of a good way to depict um 
swimming in the lake being considered bad because there's something in the lake that could be poisonous. And I think it's just so interesting how we do have symbols in our day-to-day -day lives that are just picking up on basic cognitive phenomena through cognitive psychological research. And I think it's really interesting how you mentioned skyscrapers being a depiction of overcoming like a mountain. And because it's interesting how, because skyscrapers, they're in an economy, they typically house like offices and stuff. And it's typically where a lot of economic activity takes place. And it's kind of interesting how overcome. Um, overcoming that mountain is also like building up economic success and it kind of could be tied into like capitalism and Western needs for the best of the best. And I always wonder like why, like, okay, using symbolism too as a barometer for how we are doing as a society and mm -hmm. like, first of all, like where things got established and then also to show how, how things are going, but why high and not wide? That's you know? true. <laughs> Cause if it's, if the building's so high, being wider, you'd think it would have a better foundation. Mm -hmm. But I guess intuitively, maybe some societies, they're more focused on the tallest success because we see America kind of um, kind of going against China and other um, major outputs of economic activity in other countries. Like I think India's one, um, all these other major countries. And even though they're going up so high, you see that when they don't have that proper safety net, it's kind of like that foundation or the building being wider. It in times of economic downturn, it's a really it's really bad, like recession and stuff. Like we saw with COVID nineteen, that when um, there were so many outbreaks and so much contamination from the COVID virus, we weren't able to work normally, and a lot of there was a downturn in economic output and stuff. And I think that's just kind of interesting, like tall lengthy buildings being conceptualized as economic activity when rather they should be wide so kind of having like a safety net mm -hmm. well it makes me think of the tower of babel and how the point of the tower of babel was human that society at the time was believed to want to reach heaven mm -hmm. and then ultimately that that did not happen and it, and so part of me is like are we still is, is that idea still there are we trying yeah. to reach some sort of heaven yeah, it's an interesting kind of idea, like kind of like the perfect form of society. But in reality, who is that society being perfected for? Mm -hmm. Well, and now I think in I don't I'm not sure about New York, but I think that you can't build towers that high. And I feel like they, they've changed the codes in some areas, at least. Like, yeah. like, OK, enough building these gigantic, massive towers. Yeah. Uh, for safety purposes or whatever i don't know yeah definitely because I, I know i've seen like videos of those buildings kind of swaying in the winds they're kind of it's kind of eerie to see and just mm -hmm. imagine yourself being up there yeah i don't know if i if i could i i, ooh, I yeah, okay i don't know i don't know if i can't choose <laughs> <laughs> thoughts i also like how we continue to honor our history and use of symbolism for uh for like space travel missions yeah um using the Greek gods as that inspiration, which makes sense. I mean, we named the planets after the Greek gods. Right. It makes sense. That's make space travel. That. Yeah. yeah. That one's really cool. Anything else? Um, No, not that I could think of. I think we touched a lot on a lot of different uses of symbolism. That's the most I've ever talked about symbolism with somebody, which is cool. <laughs> Does a writer, now we're segueing into the writer technical part. Does a writer need to worry about symbolism in their work? I really think readers have a, I don't want to say addiction, because that sounds kind of like arrogant of me to say, but I think readers do crave realism in their stories, especially science fiction, because I think a lot of readers just traditionally, especially in modern society, they like stories that are real, like the Andy Weir, Weir type of stories. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. He wrote The Martian, Project Hail mm -hmm. Mary. Yes. I think a lot of people like stories that are realistic. When you insert a symbol, it kind of diverts from that realism by focusing on something that's, I don't want to say like a wrench in the story, but it kind of diverts your attention to a specific symbol that kind of isn't meant to be totally realistic. And I think with my own experience with my book, reader, because I use a lot of shocking imagery to depict something symbolic, readers typically just thought I was trying to put shock factor into the story and they they complained that this wasn't realistic enough it didn't focus it didn't seem like a realistic enough story because my current book that's on the market runaway humanity it deals with humans that 
After after they left Earth to colonize Mars due to Earth being inhospitable to life, they go back to Earth to investigate signs of life on the planet. But a lot of people didn't like that I used humanoids as the kind of bioengineered humanoids as the kind of depiction of what was causing all the output of um, biosignatures. And so when it's, the humanoids are meant to kind of be a depiction of like man's like greatest destruction to Earth, which is um, you know, like fossil fuels and stuff. And mm -hmm. people thought like the the violent imagery I depicted of that of the humanoids and how they violated the female scientist that was leading the mission. Many people thought it was just trying to be shocking. But me, when I because there was a scene where the humanoids kidnap the female scientist and they actually sexually assault her. That wasn't meant to be like shocking. It was meant to like depict kind of like a reference to Earth being assaulted by humans. Um by creation of humans and people didn't really interpret it that way i thought it was more obvious but i guess it wasn't so i think really writers should worry i mean you shouldn't worry about how you create your art because art is just it's subjective experience between the artist and the art consumer but i think writers should worry about how readers might respond to things that aren't as realistic by using a symbol that might not totally mesh well with the larger environment that's being depicted in the, in the writing which it is unfortunate to me because i love symbols it's my favorite thing to do in writing but i think a lot of people they readers just crave realism and some people just aren't as acquainted with symbols they don't have, they're not trying to think much not like in a bad way but they're not trying to think a lot when they're reading they just want to breeze through the pages and have a realistic experience and i think that's fine but i think a lot of readers typically miss out on good symbols that make a story so much richer than just a realistic depiction kind of like a dream in a sense or mm. something that you can't perceive with just the regular senses i will admit that i'm much better at picking out symbols in movies anything with visual yeah uh, because to me it's it's like oh like you catch it and they don't even have to mention it right like it's the, the setting happens to be there and you the way they shot it you, you can, yeah. it hits you with books i think because i immerse so much like I when I'm reading I feel like I'm right there with them that's why I love it so much it's uh, a great experience but then almost like the real world when you walk through life and you don't realize the symbols around you kind of definitely, thing um definitely. It, so I like when all my examples are like <laughs> visual based because you know maybe I don't do I mean I just don't get to notice it but that's why I always love unpacking books after um and, and kind of coming and loving Twitter the discourse on Twitter afterwards because then I'm like oh I didn't even think about that that's awesome definitely definitely should a writer worry about needing to put symbolism in their books? I don't think so. I think some books are more, symbols are more adequate to add to them. I think some books, when they're just meant to be realistic, you shouldn't have to, you shouldn't have to focus on symbols. But I think stuff like that's so out of this world and kind of incompatible with how we how we scientifically describe the physical world and the physical universe i think symbolism is a really good mechanism there so like uh i don't know depicting heaven that's something we don't have any natural depiction of we have our but we do have symbolism to depict it um and so i think when it comes to something that we aren't physically aware of in our current reality i think it's good um symbolism works well there but when it's something like a realistic science fiction story i think Use of symbolism isn't as mandatory to me. I don't even think really any story is mandated to put a type of symbolism in. I think if you're depicting something realistic, a symbol symbolism would work just fine if it's worked in well enough. But I think it really just depends on the type of story and how much allegory is really needed to convey something deeper and more abstract. How can writers subvert expectations when it comes to symbolism? Let's say that they're like, I feel like everyone already makes that association with that symbol, but now I want to turn it on its head. Is that doable? I'd say so. It really is just a, it's really just depends on context. So like that maybe like, so like symbols, we've already unpacked that there's so many different variables at play that you can manipulate to depict a symbol in a particular way. You can use the color red to depict rage, sometimes passion. Or green for like um jealousy and then you also have setting like how like how the um, environment is depicted but maybe if those symbols they're using a particular schema by authors typically maybe you could like do a con contradicting one where the variables are different and then kind of like how the variables come 
to interact to kind of create a dependent variable, how the reader perceives it, it could be different by just having two contrasting variables at play as symbols. That's great advice. Well, that makes me think of, I think it was Disney's Nutcracker in the Four Realms, mm -hmm. where Kira Knightley's Sugar Plum Fairy character ends up being the villain, but the entire time she's not yeah. symbolized as such until of course the big reveal which makes for a good twist but if, but it is kind of cool like to to kind of i don't know take the wednesday adams uh archetype and her roommate who was all in pink and i didn't actually watch the full series so i don't know how this resulted but it would be funny it, well, I think actually that's the whole point of the Adams family is subverting the symbolism of like dark and dreary with like chipper and more mainstream is the idea that like just because we are dark and dreary doesn't mean that we're bad people. We're actually Definitely. very in they were creative and great people. That reminds me of like um what was that nineties movie? It's the Adams Family Values or something. And the um I think the villain was the the wife that married that one bald guy um that was from the oh, Adams family i yes. think i remember that i rewatched um, that recently i love it what, what was that was it joan cusack or something it was jo joan cusack yes yeah <laughs> bad at pronouncing words i never said but um yeah that reminds me of that it's a good movie i haven't watched it in a while i watched it when i was really young and i remember being freaked out. i watched it again like last year actually i think it was on netflix again and mm -hmm. it made me really appreciate the comedic skill of joan cusack and of course i know who joan cusack is now as i'm older and other works that she's done she's a, a fantastic character actress and so when i first saw it, i was like my gosh she's gorgeous you know i'm watching i this. know and then i'm like but she's such a she her her performance is like to me I think comedic and then sure enough it works so well when it turns into evil and it is it's a campy movie right like it's pretty Definitely. campy um, which I love uh, and one the other thing I, I love too I'm changing gears a little bit now because I'm rewatching the whole thing with my daughter right now is Xena Warrior Princess very very campy show um, but I I love it it's over the top it's not realistic yeah. Um, yeah embraces greek mythology and symbolism so anyway yeah i just i think camp is kind of like a good genre for subverting expectations of realism but while still depicting a serious story and i think that's just the beauty of campiness and that's something i love and um implementing in my stories well joshua this has been such a wonderful conversation thank you again for joining me can any la final remarks that you want to leave with our listeners today um no i think that was that was it. It's okay. Good. And how can people find you? Um, so on Instagram, my name is Joshua Valentine One. It's spelled just as it sounds. Um, no spaces, no underscores or anything. Um, I'm also on Amazon as Joshua Valentine. I I'm surprisingly there's more author lots of authors named Joshua Valentine. So just look up Runaway Humanity and you could find copies of it there. Speculative Sandbox is a volunteer-run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you. Join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Interested in being in a future episode? Our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.